I needed a little levity right there. I, I still remember the first time I saw evidence of two deer having their antlers locked together uh, so much that they couldn't get free. I, I remember where I was. I was in high school, and this is just something that had never occurred to me. I mean, it made logical sense. I had just never thought about two deer, you know, fighting for dominance like bucks do and just and getting their antlers so tied together they just couldn't, can't get loose and they're just stuck and they just die like that. It made perfect sense once I saw it, but it had never dawned on me and I just remember being shocked by that. Like, what a way to go. I'm sure, uh, I'm sure these deer are like, why couldn't we just die like every other deer on the hood of a suburban someplace? <laughs> why did we have to go out like this? Uh, we, now it's kind of common because everybody that walks around in the, in the woods or the pastures has a high-definition camera with them. So we, every couple of years, we, we see pictures of... Uh, stuff like this. And, you know, it's never a couple of little spike bucks that get tied up like this, right? You never see, um, you never see a couple of two-by-twos because they just don't have enough going on up here, right? It's always a couple of monsters. And so it's also a little bit sad to think, you know, it's not like a hunter got to harvest these, at least in the normal way, and have the thrill of that, but still, the genetics from those two monsters are just gone. And so, there's, there's, you see this, and there's always like, you know, what trophy never got produced because these two got so tangled up, they couldn't get apart. Now, the overall deer population will not be noticeably harmed by such a tragedy. Right? Ask Imperial Auto Renewal out here on the high. I ask a body shop somewhere. Uh, but there's just, it has to be true. There's some trophy that never existed because these two went out like this, right? Well, that makes me think in a very loose parallel. How many loose parallels over the history of Christianity? Over the last 2,000 years, how many times have two Christians locked horns? And that, that combat has taken on such a life of its own that it, drained, it began to drain energy, maybe out of a local church, maybe it changed the testimony of the combatants. They never got separated. They never got away from it, but it began to affect the gospel. Hasn't that happened over the last 2,000 years around the world? Doesn't it has to have happened? Now, I know God is sovereign, and God can and will save everyone He wants, but logically speaking, has, doesn't it have to have happened that something like this, two people have gone to battle, it's taken that life of its own, there's been impact of the gospel that someone somewhere didn't hear the gospel 
Someone somewhere was so turned off, was so scared, was so disillusioned, was so whatever. They, they didn't like the five, they didn't like, so they didn't come back. It's just logically speaking, like Paul told us earlier, we can harm the work God wants to do through our lack of unity. Just logically speaking, doesn't that have to have happened countless times over the centuries? Now, praise God, like the overall deer population, the church of Jesus Christ is in no danger of going extinct. Jesus promised to build his church. But doesn't it make you sad to think someone somewhere, maybe on the Mediterranean coast of Turkey 2,000 years ago, or in Chase County today, doesn't it make you sad to think there's, there might be somebody who could have been a real trophy for the gospel of Jesus Christ? It's some battle that didn't need to be fought, kept the gospel from. This morning we're going to end a section of the book of Romans. This is the next to last section of the body of the book. We're going to put a bow on it this morning and move on next week. Um, the whole section started clear back in chapter 12. And the whole section is about what the Christian life looks like. How to live the Christian life. Paul calls it being a living sacrifice. If I have accepted the mercies of God, then the most logical thing I can do is give my life, body and all, to the God who saved me, who can make all the terrible things in this world somehow work together for good for those who love Him. Some mornings it is harder to, to grab that one than others. But if God can take all of the mess of this planet and make it work for good, why wouldn't I give my life, body, and all to a God like that? To be a, a sacrifice that's alive and holy and pleasing to Him, it's the best way to spend my life. Now, what's it look like if I do that? That's chapters 12 through 15. The last half of that section has been about unity within the body of Christ. We're going to close that section this morning. Paul's talked a lot about this, uh, this topic, because when we lock horns in here, it has effects on the herd, effects on the gospel. So this morning, Paul's going to send us off with one final admonition or command toward unity. He's going to uh, show his original audience in Rome and, and us too that this was always God's plan to, to unify some people with, with stark differences. And then he's going to tell us what it is we're supposed to be unified on. And that's our hope. So let's read our passage together this morning. This is Romans chapter 15. Verses 7 through 13 in the New American Standard, they read this way. Therefore, 
accept one another just as Christ also accepted us to the glory of God. For I say that Christ has become a servant to the circumcision on behalf of the truth of God to confirm the promises given to the fathers or the patriarchs and for the Gentiles to glorify God for his mercy. As it is written, therefore, I will give praise to you among the Gentiles and I will sing to your name. Again, he says, rejoice, O Gentiles, with his people. Verse 11, and again, praise the Lord, all you Gentiles, and let all the peoples praise him. Again, Isaiah says, there shall come the root of Jesse, and he who arises to rule over the Gentiles, in him shall the Gentiles hope. Now, may the God of hope fill you with all joy and peace in believing or while you believe so that you will abound in hope by the power of the Holy Spirit. There's our passage this morning. We begin in verse 7 where Paul gives us one last command for unity within the body of Christ. He writes, Welcome one another or receive one another or accept one another just as Christ welcomed, received, accepted you. And there's one little part that didn't make it onto this slide that I ripped off the internet. Um, To the glory of God. We've seen this word that gets translated welcome here, um, accept, receive. We've seen that throughout this section. And it demands, it's a word that demands showing warmth, showing love, um, Fellowship for another person. Paul's been telling us this for weeks now, if you've been here. Welcome one another. People, especially people you disagree with, who are different from you in some ways, especially um, Paul's been talking about ways that aren't revealed as as being sinful. Now, why should we want to do that? Or in what manner? Should we do that? Well, Paul says, receive one another in the way that, in the manner that Christ received, welcome, was warm toward you. So now, remind me, why was it that Jesus welcomed me into his family? Why was it that Jesus showed warmth and acceptance of you? Was it because I just had so much in common with Jesus? We got, it was just a natural fit. Is that why Jesus was warm and accepting toward me? Did Jesus accept you, welcome you? Because you were just so similar with a first century Jewish carpenter who also happened to be God that like no one should be surprised that you two are close now. No. No, not at all. Paul told us earlier in this book of Romans that Christ welcomed us, accepted us while we were still sinners. While we were wicked, he said. While we were God's enemies, 
That's when Christ died for us. And what did he do to be able to welcome us? To go back to our dear illustration, he knew that the dominant buck of all, he knew that his father was going to lock horns with us and it wasn't going to go well. And so he put himself between the wrath of the Father and me. And he took the punishment I deserve because of all of my differences from God so that God would empty out both barrels of his wrath onto his perfect son and have none left for me. Isn't that true? That is the only way I can be accepted by God. And I am. God loves me. And if you believe in Jesus Christ, God welcomes, loves, and adores you. And not because of how compatible you were. But because of his great love and his desire to, at the end of this verse didn't make it, glorify himself. God is glorified by taking people who are very different from God, who don't deserve to be welcomed into his family, and doing what it takes to welcome them into his family. Isn't that true? Now, Paul just told us, we're supposed to welcome others like that. We are supposed to welcome others who are different, who are messy, who, you name it. Don't hear me wrong. Paul would never tell us, ignore sin. Call sinful things not sinful. No. But we are supposed to welcome people like Jesus. Receive people like Jesus received us. Because God has always been glorified by taking people who are way different from him, way less than him, lowering himself and doing what it took to accept them into his family. It's always been his plan. Now, in the church Paul's writing to in Rome, there was no bigger difference in a kind of person between the Jewish Christians and the non-Jewish Christians that Paul usually calls Gentiles, not people of non-Israeli descent. All of us are Gentiles. And Paul wants to make sure the church in Rome knows, even as vastly Different as difficult it is, as it is for Jew and Gentile to get along, God's plan was always even for that. Unity among these vastly different people groups was always part of the plan. Here's the confusing part of the passage, to me anyway, so turn your brains back on if they went to sleep on you. For I tell you, Paul says that Christ has become a servant of the circumcised. That's Israel. Christ became a servant of Israel on behalf of God's truth to confirm the promises he made to the fathers, to the patriarchs, to Abraham and Isaac and Jacob. And thus the Gentiles glorify God. The Gentiles glorify God for his mercy. Now what's Paul mean there? First, how did Christ become a servant of Israel. Well, Christ served Israel in the same way he served the rest of us 
chiefly by dying on the cross under the penalty their sins deserve, right? But Paul says he became the, the servant. He died on the cross in a way that confirmed the promises made to Israel. Here's the cool thing. Uh, there's lots of cool things about Jesus. But the way that Jesus came and lived and died fulfilled scads of prophecies and promises that Israel had been waiting on. And so one way, what Paul's getting at here is Jesus came and lived and died in a way that so clearly fulfills the promises God made to the forefathers of Israel that Israel should have a head start at accepting Jesus as Messiah, as Savior. They should. God served. Jesus served Israel in a way where they could recognize him clearly. Now, the fact that most people of Israeli descent have rejected Jesus as Messiah, does that mean Jesus didn't serve them? Not at all. Um, if we go out here and have lunch, like we're going to in a little bit, let's say, let's pretend you didn't bring anything today, which is fine. And, and some people say, I'm, so, I'm just so glad you're here. Will you stay and eat with us? And they, they set you down, and they, they set your, your plate. They go and get you the best food that we have and you bring it over and they tuck a little napkin up here on it and just get everything ready just for you and you take one look at the plate and get up and like dump the table over and storm out you have rejected their service but did they still serve you of course they did Jesus served Israel in a way that confirmed all of the promises God ever made to Israel And now the cool part. Then Paul says, and thus the Gentiles glorify God for his mercy. Here's what this does not say. Paul does not say God decided to serve Israel, the circumcised, by sending Christ in a way where they could recognize him. They rejected him. So then God kicked sand on Israel and moved on to save the Gentiles. Not what this says. In fact, this says, God saved the Gentile as part of confirming his promises God made to the forefathers. Paul's telling the church in Rome, um, my Jewish brothers and sisters up there, when you see all of these former pagan, sometimes current pagan Gentiles coming into the church, and you think, oh, this cannot be part of God's plan, Paul says, listen, He's keeping his promises he made to you by bringing those people into the family of God. Because the, the main promise God made to Israel, we call it the Abrahamic covenant. I'll spare you the long lesson. But God showed up to a guy named Abraham who's like the great, great granddaddy of the nation of Israel. He said, I promise I'm going to give you descendants that are going to become a great nation. That's Israel. And then I'm going to bless all of the families of the world through your family, Abraham. So Paul says, Israel, when you see all the families of the earth coming in, don't be disgusted. Praise God that he keeps his promises. That was always part of God's plan. So Paul wants to, just in case, he has some slow learners. There's some in every crowd. It might be you. I don't want to, it might, it could be. 
There's some of us in every crowd. Paul says, I'm going to give you three other verses from Scripture that illustrate this same point, this unity. God collecting vastly different people from all walks of life was always part of God's plan. And Paul's going to share um, right here from three different places. There's a progression in this that's really quite cool. Paul says, just as it is written, because of this, I will confess you among the Gentiles and I will sing praises to your name. That's from the Psalms. This was written a thousand years before Paul wrote and lived. And in this poem, in the Psalm, the speaker is Israel. And Israel says, because of how awesome you are, God, someday I am going to sing your praises out there among non-Israelis. I'm going to sing praises to your name out there amongst those people who don't even know who you are. When did this start to happen? In mass? Right during Paul's day. There's a whole bunch of people of Israeli descent, all the disciples and their friends who suddenly are going out to the Gentiles singing praises, proclaiming how awesome God is. Didn't that happen in Paul's day? Yeah. Then, he quotes from Deuteronomy here, again it says, Rejoice, O Gentiles, with his people. So now, Paul said, long, long time ago, God said, there's going to be Gentiles rejoicing God with God's people, Israel. When was that happening in Mass at first? Right during Paul's day. There was this brief time, like the church in Rome that Paul was writing to, where that's, there's this mix of Jew and Gentile praising God together. And then Paul, because he can see what the makeup of the church, where it's going, Paul says, and then again, back to Psalms, he says, Praise the Lord, all you Gentiles, and let all the peoples praise him. And then in that verse, Paul picks out, picks out a verse that Israel's not even mentioned. They're sort of tacitly mentioned as part of all the peoples in the world. That's what the church looks like today. Predominantly Gentile, leading the praises of God because God kept his promises to Israel. And so with, with those verses and the, the previous one, this is Paul's way of saying this was always God's plan. Would you agree with it? Would you agree with this? It was always God's plan. From the, from the moment of the first sin, someday I'm going to glorify myself by collecting people from every tribe and tongue and nation. And every knee is going to bow and every tongue is going to confess that Jesus Christ is Lord and they're all, all these different kinds of people are going to glorify me with, like with one voice. Wasn't that God's overall plan? Well, if that's God's plan, like on the macro worldwide level, that's God's plan on the local level too. The people who are different, people who are messy, people who are difficult, people who are different from me in whatever way, God will be glorified if I extend the welcome in a way that glorifies him.
And Paul ends this section, it seems like he changes topics here because he stops talking about unity. And he starts talking about hope and joy and peace. But Paul has not stopped talking about unity. He's just talking about what's supposed to be the source and the bedrock of our unity. And it's our hope. In verse 12, Paul writes this, And again, Isaiah says, The root of Jesse will come, and the one who rises to rule over the Gentiles, in him will the Gentiles hope. And then Paul ends with this prayer, Now may the God of hope fill you with all joy and peace as you believe in him, so that you may abound in hope by the power of the Holy Spirit. Paul wants to talk about hope to end this, and, I, and so I do too. Before we dig, dig into this, I want to share with you just something that's generally true about your human nature. And something that's generally true about my human nature, just human beings in general. Generally, this is true. We tend to put our hope in what we think will give us the most joy in the future. We tend to put our hopes in what we believe will bring us the most joy at some point. You think about that, and you'll find that's true. If you're having financial troubles, struggles, or there's things you want that you can't get, and your heart begins to think, and your, your brain begins to think, man, I would have a lot more joy. I would be happier if I had more money. What do you start to put your hopes in? You start daydreaming about winning the lottery. You start hoping for a raise, for a better job, for more, right? Because I think more money will give me joy, so I put my hope in what will get me there. If we think, this is why we care so much about sports. Sports is the easiest example, right? Later this afternoon, Cedric and I will watch the Super Bowl. I don't know if you've heard, but the Chiefs are in it again. Right? And we hope they will win. You know why? Because we are going to experience joy when they do. It's not real joy. It's happiness. It's like baby. It's like little tiny baby joy. Right? That's, that's, why, that's why we care about sports. Because when our team wins, it makes us happy. So we put our hopes there. Maybe it's my own athletic career when I had one. Man, if I can be good enough where I get that scholarship where people think I'm impressive, that will give me joy. So I put my hopes there. Professional success. Maybe it's that certain someone, if they would like me, if those people would accept me, that would feel good. I would have joy. So I start putting my hopes and my actions follow my hope to try to gain acceptance in the people that I think will give me joy. We tend to put our hopes in the area where we think it will give us joy in the future, right? It's why we put our hope in, in politicians and political parties, because man, when my side wins, and especially when that side loses, I'm going to have joy watching them suffer. Now, here's another truth. 
Human beings can't generate hope. Human beings cannot generate real hope. You know why? Because we can't build anything that either can deliver real joy or that can't be taken away by this world. One of those two things. Either we do achieve something and we find out it really doesn't deliver what I thought it was going to deliver. Right? Like, the Chiefs finally won a Super Bowl last year. It was awesome. It's not like my life's been filled with joy every second since. Right? Last about two weeks, then we start thinking about next year. Right? Everything we put our hopes in on this world, either it doesn't deliver the joy we thought it would, or we put our hope in that, and our brain and our heart knows, I can lose that. And anytime we put our hopes in something we know we can lose, the result's not joy. It's anxiety. Right? It's anxiety. Again, with the sports analogy, halfway through the third quarter, if things aren't going well for the Chiefs, may it never be, Lord. <laughs> Guess what Cedric and I will be feeling? Anxiety. Why? The thing we put our hope in, we know we can lose. Like, that's true with your money. That's true with your business. It's true with the health and safety of your kids. Which is why we better make darn sure we put our hope in something we can't lose. Because we can't manufacture real hope. And we can't find it anywhere else. It either won't deliver or your heart will know you can lose it. Now check out what Paul says. Let me tell you what Isaiah said. The root of Jesse will come and the one who rises to rule over the Gentiles in him, the Gentiles hope. Isn't that awesome? Like who is Jesse and why does he have roots? Is this, about, is this about needing to get his hair done again? No. Um, Jesse, Jesse was King David's dad. Long time ago, uh, God sent a prophet to Jesse's house. So I go to Jesse's house. I'm going to show you which of his sons is going to be the good king. That king was David. God promised David, one of your descendants, David, is going to rule on your throne forever and ever and ever. You want to know what the seeming problem with that promise was? Uh, is there a descendant of David ruling on a throne on earth right now? No, there hasn't been for 2,600 years. But God promised. And when Isaiah wrote this, Isaiah was delivering the bad news. Hey, Israel, the tree of Jesse, like Jesse's family tree that all the kings come from, that's about to be chopped down. No more kings. But the root won't die. 
and the root of Jesse will spring up in a shoot. And there's going to be still a good king who not might, not maybe, not if you play your cards right, this king, the new shoot from the tree will come. And that king who rises up from the, from the family tree of Jesse, he's going to rule over all the Gentiles. That's us. And in him, the Gentiles will hope. Boy, let me tell you, someday we are going to see what good government looks like. Because there's a king coming. His name is Jesus. He came once, but he didn't come to rule. He came to die so that when he started his kingdom, maybe there could be some people in it. But he's coming again. And he's going to rule, and he's going to reign, and he is going to be the hope. And isn't that going to be awesome? He's going to wipe every tear from every eye. There's going to be no more sickness. There's going to be no more weakness. Our bodies are going to be remade, whole, and perfect. And all. Isn't that awesome? Yes. It's already awesome. Now, Paul says, may the God who gives hope like that fill you with all joy and all peace. How do you get joy? By putting your hope in something you can't lose. And peace. When a Hebrew thinker like Paul mentions peace, think of the, the concept shalom, wholeness, contentment, where everything is just right. Now, may the God of hope Fill you with all joy and all peace when? As you believe in him. That can't be when he comes back because you don't have to believe in him when you see him. This is now. The God, God can give you a hope that can fill you with joy and peace right now while you believe he's coming before he gets here when this place is a wreck. That hope can give us a sense of peace, shalom, and joy. Now, does that mean we won't have disappointment? Of course not. Does that mean we won't have sadness? Of course not. Does that mean we won't suffer? Of course not. The opposite of hope is not sadness. The opposite of hope is hopelessness. The opposite of hope is despair. And Paul says, I want you, church, to be unified because you have the right hope. There's a king coming. You're already in the kingdom. It's going to be awesome. So what happens here is temporary, though it may hurt. And that can give me peace and joy the world can't get at. That the world can't get at. That's why Peter calls it your living hope. So that win, um, say hypothetically speaking, three weeks ago or so, when it becomes clear that a politician you don't like is going to get a four-year lease in the White House. 
If I slipped into despair, if I slipped into hoping there was some miracle that would swoop in at the last second or everything is lost, I had the wrong hope in in a fake king. You can be disappointed. You can suffer. But we should never lose hope. Because my hope is someplace this world can't get at. And yours should be too. So that you may abound and be filled with hope by the power of the Holy Spirit. You know why Paul wants us to be filled with, put our hopes in the right hope so we're just overflowing with joy and peace? You know why? What was Paul's mission? What did Paul want to see more than anything else? Why did he, what did he pour his life out doing? Spreading the gospel so that people would come to know the king. And so Paul writes to this church and say, it says, church, put your hope in the right thing so that you can have this, this, this hope that overflows into real joy and the sense of peace. You know why? Because it's attractive to a world that's filled with despair. Because it is what keeps us from damaging the gospel when we lose it. So that So that when it's your phone that rings, it's your son on the gurney, so it's when it's your son that's 42 years old and dies from a broken heart in front of you. You will have somewhere to go besides despair. You can have through the suffering and the hurt and the pain, you can have a joy. You can have a peace that says, this isn't forever. I can't wait how good this is going to feel when you fix this, Lord, in your time. That's the God of hope filling somebody with all joy and peace while they believe in him. Because whether or not he steps in and saves the day, he is guaranteed he has fixed and saved eternity. Pray with me. We'll uh, go to communion. Father God, um, unify us in that hope. Help us put our hope in our King. So that we might have peace and joy that this broken world can't scratch. We need that, Lord. 
But ultimately, we need that not just because it's good for us, but because we live to see you glorified. And so that when the world falls apart for us and you are, you hold us buoyant in that joy and with that peace, someone else might say, why haven't you jumped off a tall building yet? And we can say, because my hope is alive. And his name is Jesus. And this life is short and painful, but eternity is long and wonderful for those who are in Christ Jesus, would you glorify yourself by bringing others to know our hope? We love you, our King. We are ready for your return. But in the meantime, we will hope and we will have joy and we will have peace while we believe that you're coming. In Jesus' name, amen.